You're listening to Current with Valerie Hayes. Welcome back to the show. Today we're delving into important, quote-unquote, women's issues, and abortion is about as controversial a topic as there comes. Now that we've talked about the 1973 Supreme Court ruling that declared laws banning abortion to be unconstitutional, let's talk a little bit about what's happened since 1973, how that original ruling has created some of these pop-up laws that we keep seeing, as well as the current legal discussions about abortion. So remember that in 1973, the, the Supreme Court held that laws banning, outright banning abortion, except in the case of rape and incest, those laws were unconstitutional. And it further ruled that the states could put in place laws that controlled abortion, access to abortion in the second and third trimester, and it outlined situations that those types of abortions could be acceptable, specifically in the second trimester, um, months four, five, and six. It's stated that abortions could be limited during that time frame, but could be um, available to women whose personal health was at risk, and it indicated that that original ruling indicated that in life, in months seven, eight, and nine, that abortions really could not be performed because the fetus was viable outside the woman, the womb, outside the womb, but that um, it, those during those months it could also be an abortion could be um, administered if the the life of the mother was at risk, right? And then as part of that original ruling, what sometimes got ignored or overlooked was the fact that states could put laws in place that would um, limit uh or control how abortion clinics were operating. In other words, you need to have a clean clinic, a well-run clinic, a sterilized procedure room with sterilized equipment. You need to have a certain number of surgical nurses standing by on hand. You need to have the appropriate pain-killing medications. You need to have blood-clotting medications. This is how you need to handle the tissue or the fetus once it is aborted. So they could put processes in place to control the procedure so that it was done in a medically correct way, but they could not restrict the procedure itself. So remember in that 1973 ruling, it defined um, fetal, fetal viability as from months seven, eight, and nine on, right? So the first two trimesters, it did not see the fetus as viable because due to medical technology and science at that time, um, babies that were born prior to seven months, typically were not able to survive. But in 1992, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is a lesser-known ruling by the Supreme Court, the court rejected Roe's original trimester framework and affirmed the central definition or the central concept of fetal viability. And that's the thing that has changed over time. And that's one of those reasons that we keep hearing about first and second trimester abortions and access to what might be called late-term abortions is because the definition of fetal viability has changed. And in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, again, which is in 1992, uh, the Supreme Court held that fetal viability was no longer at that seven, eight, or nine-month mark, that it was somewhere between 23 and 24 weeks. So they defined viable as potentially able to live outside the mother's womb with medical or artificial assistance and that viability may occur, may occur, don't you love that may occur? So helpful, may occur, not really definite, 
may occur at 23 or 24 weeks or sometimes even earlier in light of medical advances. Well, now, you know, uh, now, you know, over 20 years later, what, 24 years later, since this ruling in 1992, we're now hearing a lot of these discussions, you're hearing it in the news, that fetal viability is at 22 weeks or is it at 20 weeks. And so fetal viability or the ability of the fetus to live outside the womb has become a central issue in the debate about abortion and access to abortion and who gets to determine. And remember, the government is trying to balance the the right to privacy, you know, your ability to decide what you do in the privacy of your own life, in your own home. They're trying to balance the right to privacy versus the government's responsibility to protect and defend the innocent. So let's do a few numbers here just to understand what we're talking about. Approximately 700,000 legally induced abortions are reported each year to the Center for Disease Control, 700,000. So that's three, almost three quarters of a million abortions occur every year. And um, for every 1,000 live births, every one thousand live births there are approximately 210 abortions performed so if you think about it that's about 20 percent which is a little strange to think of so for every thousand babies that are born 210 abortions are performed typically the largest group of women seeking access to abortion are women in their 20s. They account for 91% of abortions that are performed in the first trimester. So 91% of abortions are performed in the first trimester. 7.2% of abortions are performed between 14 and 20 weeks of gestation. So kind of that second trimester concept, right? And only 1.3% of abortions are performed beyond the 21 weeks of gestation. Why is that important? Because you're hearing a lot in the news right now about adjusting the uh, the target date for fetal viability to t- either 20, 21, 22 weeks of viability. That's the discussion that we're at now, right? We're not doing the you know, seven, eight, nine month viability. Now we're down to, you know, 20 weeks, which is um, five months, right? Uh, 20 weeks, 21 weeks, or 22. So so when, if your state is considering enacting a law that restricts access to abortion at the 22-week mark or even the 21-week mark, you're thinking, you might be thinking this is a great advance if you are a pro-life individual. But remember, realistically, only 1.3% of abortions are performed at the 21 or 22 week mark or beyond. So that type of law is really not going to have much of an impact on the vast majority of abortions that are performed. So let's talk for just a minute about the two kind of groups. We have the pro-life group and the pro-choice group. And both of them have meaningful arguments that we need to be informed of in order to make our own personal decision. Let's take our pro-life group first. Um, They have two sets of arguments. The first one is often the most obvious uh, pro-life argument. It's based on a religious conviction. Um, it's typically uh, 
a faith-based objection that indicates that ending a life of a child, no matter how far along the fetus is, no matter how many weeks along it is, uh, that ending the life of a fetus is a violation because that life has been given or created by God. Now, it doesn't necessarily matter which God you're talking about. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the Christian God, if you're talking about Yahweh or the Jewish God, or if you're talking about Allah, or if you're talking about uh, a reincarnated life. Um, a religious objection is based on the concept that ending a pregnancy is a violation of life given by God and is therefore unacceptable and not appropriate in society, and that we should protect all innocent life. Obviously, there's no meaningful argument to that. If people feel that way, if that's their own personal belief, then they have a right to that belief. However, in our country, as stated in the Constitution of the United States, the government does not endorse or make laws based on religious uh, philosophies or religious perspectives. So while that is a valid argument for those individuals, our government does not make faith-based laws, for example, like um, like ISIS, or, or perhaps even uh, a better example is Saudi Arabia, that is a Sharia law country. It is a Muslim country, and many of their laws are based on religious laws and Sharia laws, and that this is acceptable. All right, so... So the first argument of pro-life um, groups is the religious argument, which really there is no no um, philosophical debate there. That's what they believe. They but they do also have a secular argument, which means they do have arguments for why people should have a pro-life position that are not based on religion. And they have four main arguments. The first one is what they feel is a scientific argument. They believe uh, pro-life individuals believe that scientifically life begins at except conception so that at the time that the sperm fertilizes the egg it immediately starts um, it becomes a zygote and you know those cells start separating you've all seen this in in science class biology class those cells stop separating and they basically don't stop separating until or separating and and duplicating and creating more cells until the child is born so uh, pro-lifers indicate that scientifically life begins at conception and that there is no other meaningful time to determine that life begins at conception. So their argument is if life begins at conception, then that is in fact a child and a human being and deserves the rights and protections of the U.S. Constitution. So the first argument is life begins at conception. The second argument is more of a human development argument. So they're kind of saying, okay, if you don't believe, number one, that life begins at conception, let me move on to number two, which is human development. And that um, position is that really within the first month of conception, really about 22 days, that the zygote has now, those cells have divided and developed enough that there are physical attributes that indicate that the zygote has now become a human. And they state that at about 22 days after conception, the heart beat, the heart is beating and it's beginning to circulate its own blood, not the mother's blood, right? Its own blood, and that that heartbeat can be detected on an ultrasound. They also indicate that about six weeks, the child has eyes, it has eyelids, a nose, a mouth, and a tongue have formed. Um, they also indicate that electrical brain activity can be defected in a fetus at about six to seven weeks, and that by the end of the eighth week, 
Um, it has developed all of its major organs and body structures and that by 10 weeks after conception, so that would be like a month and a half, right? I'm sorry, two and a half months. 10 weeks is two and a half months. At 10 weeks after conception, the child can actually make bodily movements. So they're saying but by 10 weeks, the zygote has now become a fetus, but that the fetus, you know, we tend to refer to it as a fetus, is actually demonstrating human development qualities, and so is a human or a child, and deserves the protection um, under the rights and privileges of the U.S. Constitution. So those are our first two arguments, that scientifically life begins at conception, that within the first month, and certainly by the end of 10 weeks, the child's major organ systems and um, physical attributes that indicate them as a human, as a child, have developed and that they should then um, be protected. They also state um, statistics and studies that demonstrate that most Americans favor laws limiting abortion. So what's important to remember is that, you know, the American people are a generous and supportive and inclusive people, but they also don't think that people should be running around having 10 and 12 abortions. They think that that's a little bit excessive. So studies do, in fact, indicate that 61% of Americans um, are concerned about abortion and indicate some openness to abortion being illegal after the fetal heartbeat. So 61% of Americans are kind of buying into that human development argument that once the the child's major organ systems have been developed in the fetus and that they have a fetal heartbeat and they're generating their own blood, you know, as opposed to earlier when they're a fetus and they're circulating in the mother's blood through their body. Um, after the 61% of Americans say abortion should be limited or illegal after the fertile fetal heartbeat has been detected. 71% of Americans say it should be illegal after the first three months of pregnancy. And um, 86% of Americans say abortion should be illegal after the first six months of pregnancy, right? So I think that you know, that 86% of Americans saying that abortion should be illegal after the six months of pregnancy mark, so in the seventh, eighth, and ninth months, I think that speaks to the fetal viability um, topic that we've talked about. And I think that what these statistics indicate, in my opinion, is that people... Um, People can see that in some situations, abortion should be an option available to the mother, but they don't feel comfortable with it being an option after that moment of fetal viability. The the issue that pro-lifers argue with is that fetal viability shouldn't be the issue. The issue should be when has the fetus, um, either at the moment of conception or within the first month, when the fetus has developed attributes of human development. And um, the last argument that pro-life individuals go with is that abortion is not necessary, um, that we don't really need to be investing time and energy in abortion. What we really need to do is investing time and money in more programs for unwanted pregnancies to support women through their unwanted pregnancy, to support programs that can help place an adopted child in a meaningful home and help transition the mother back to her regular lifestyle. So those are the primary arguments of pro-life individuals. So there are three primary 
pro-choice arguments that are used by people who do not want to limit or change current access to abortion laws. And the first one, which is the loudest one, is that laws banning abortion do not actually stop abortion. They just make abortion less safe to women. And this was an argument that was used in the 60s and early 70s prior to Roe versus Wade. And essentially the argument is that if we have laws that ban or strictly limit abortion, women don't stop getting abortions, but they get them in back alleys or in um, black market kind of medical facilities where uh, these programs are not limited or monitored for safety and for training of personnel involved. And then what happens is these women go to these places to get an abortion because they're going to get an abortion no matter what, they've decided. And uh, because the facility is not sanitary or the equipment is not up to, to par or the personnel are not trained, that the woman can be permanently disabled or disfigured or in some cases lose her life. So that's the first argument. Laws against abortion do not stop abortion. Women still get abortion, but they get abortions in an unsafe environment. Their second argument, which is the right to privacy argument, is that doctors and women, not government, should be the people making medical recommendations and decisions about a own woman's health. For example, they say, would you tell the government, would you want the government to decide if you or a family member got a kidney transplant or if you or a family member got a heart operation? Uh, well, most people would say absolutely not. So, um, the pro, pro-choice uh, group says that we shouldn't be, just like we don't allow the government to decide if I have a kidney transplant or a heart operation, I should not allow the government to decide if I uh, pursue an abortion, which is, of course, a medical procedure. The third reason um, that they feel that there should be no restrictions or no new restrictions put on access to abortion is because they cite statistics and studies that reproductive choice is often the only thing that stands between a woman and parvity. And there are studies that indicate that as women have been utilizing birth control in Western countries throughout the world, that an individual woman's economic status has risen. So what they're saying is, if you're a woman and have eight children, you probably cannot have a job outside the home. You probably cannot access um, a lot of education. And you're probably spending a lot of time at home caring for your children, which would make sense if you had a lot of children. But because of that, women are poor because they have no employment opportunities outside the home. They don't have access to advanced education, so they exist at a a lower economic status than men. So they feel that by limiting women's right to abortion or birth control that I'm going to be talking about in the next segment, if we have restrictive abortion laws that force women to have unwanted children, we're also forcing those same women to experience a lower socioeconomic status than if they were able to make their own choices. For example, in um, sub-Saharan Africa and West Asia, women typically have five to six children, but they are some of the poorest women on the planet because of the fact that they have so many children, they're at home, they're not able to operate outside of the home and contribute to the income uh, of the family or to their own personal income. Well, it's been an interesting and complex conversation about court rulings regarding access to abortion but don't go anywhere because when we come back I'm going to review some of the issues regarding access to birth control and how that relates or doesn't relate to women's reproductive rights so stay tuned and we'll be right here on Current Talk Radio
Are you a first-time contestant who wants to make sure you're ready to answer any question? Or are you an experienced contestant who's frustrated because your interview score does not reflect your true title holder potential? Well, I'm here to share with you the biggest secret about what's holding you back from getting a top interview score. It's that most contestants don't know how to practice their interview skills correctly, so they struggle through marathon practice sessions, participate in mock interviews that actually increase frustration and decrease skills, or they just completely give up and wing it. But I've developed a foolproof system for you to use that will teach you how to practice your interview so you can deliver great answers with poise and confidence in both the interview room and on stage. This is going to be the best money you've ever spent on preparing for your pageant competition. So visit my website at ValerieHayes.com and click on the Interview Questions tab and get started towards your winning interview score today. Top contestants around the country have discovered the secret for creating a winning look. It's the Royal Wee Boutique. Former international pageant title holder Lane Berry will create a personalized, iconic competition look that establishes you as an elite contestant but doesn't drain your pocketbook. Lane has dressed evening gown winners in state, local, and national competitions of all the major pageant systems. Whether you visit in person or take advantage of their premier long-distance styling services, Lane will guide you through the steps of expressing yourself with a cohesive image that wows the judges. Visit them today at royal-we.com. You're going to look fabulous. Do you feel totally confused about how to create a winning platform? Are you unsure about which topic to pick, how to make it marketable, and how to get appearances with your platform? My do-it-yourself coaching resource, Perfect Pageant Platform, teaches you everything you need to do to create a winning platform. I'll walk you through the steps it takes to develop a platform that impresses the judges every time. So visit my website today at ValerieHayes.com and click on the Pageant Platform tab to get started on your winning platform. Get a headshot that establishes you as a serious contender for the crown. Studio D Imaging does more than just snap a photo. They actually help you create your iconic look by understanding the preferred look of your pageant and helping you to express your photogenic potential. They've created winning looks for contestants competing in all the major pageant systems, and they'll create a winning look for you too. Just visit them on Facebook by searching for Studio D Imaging or visit their website at studiodimaging.com. Contact them today and let Studio D Imaging create your perfect headshot.